0: Welcome to episode 329 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse.
1: And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Down for you. Nothing in this world I do. Hey, brother.
0: Hey, brother. We're closing out a little bit of a uh, polity on this episode. It's true. It's going to it's be true. the last in our series. It's not the last time, of course, we talk about church governance, but the last time we're trying to round out some of the things we've been talking about. And, of course, we fitted this right in the perfect spot in our conversation about theology and systematic theology because, as we've said, it matters how the local visible church administers its responsibility and all that happens by way of church governance. So, one more conversation coming for everybody about the last one of the three. We're going to complete the set, like collect them all, yes. collect all the polity.
1: Pokemon style. Right?
0: Yes. Yeah, Pokemon. Like, what, what's the ball thing
1: that they. It's called a Pokeball. Oh, is this a Pokeball? Yeah. Okay. They're not super clever with so their let's... names. A Polity Ball. A polity, ball. A polity Ball. Yep. Got to catch them all. all ball.
0: Catch them all. So, before we catch them all, let's talk about something that we would like to deny against and something that we'd like to affirm with. Since I always pick and maybe sometimes do it in order you would not prefer, what would you like to start with today? We could start
1: with affirmations. Why don't you start with your affirmation okay. today?
0: <laughs> all right. Mine's going to be quick and easy. This is, again, under the genus of apps. So I'm affirming with this slick little app called Permission Slip. And so here's how this thing works. It is, first of all, to make sure that everybody understands first, it's totally legit. It's from Consumer Reports. If you want companies to stop selling your personal information, you install this little app called Permission Slip, and it automates the task of sending out email requests to companies that sell information it collects about you to data brokers. So like within minutes, the app had sent out 18 requests on my behalf. And according to the app's dashboard, all its data that it keeps for you, it handled 54 emails. And it allegedly saved me 36 hours. So this is from Consumer Reports. It's a super slick way to kind of just get yourself out of this rotation of nonsense email and contact and communication. You can go to permissionslipcr.com if you want to go to it through your web browser or just check out Permission Slips in whatever kind of app store that you have that's associated with
1: your phone. So
0: that's it. Simple, straightforward, and I think a useful tool.
1: That's pretty amazing. I need to... Uh... I need to check this out because I get a ton of bogus emails, just ridiculous emails all the time. What they need is something that responds to uh, the like advertising text messages with the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah, I, I increasingly like this stuff. There's lots of different apps. This one is free.
0: There's some other ones that for like a smaller nominal fee, some de minimis charge, it'll help you cancel reoccurring bill payments because you're like, who, maybe there's stuff in there you're paying for. It's an old gym membership or even Netflix. Yeah. You never use it, but there's always that hurdle of like, well, I got to actually do something about how yeah. to call somebody or figure out how to cancel it. But this is kind of in between there. It's just a way to kind of clean up some of your data. I'm all about this stuff more and more just because it's nice and it's so easy now to get people to stop bugging you. So I say, well, why not? I'm Again, installing this right now. What a now. time to be alive, which which cuts both ways. What a time to be alive when anybody can spam you. What a time to be alive when we can start to fight back against it.
1: Yeah, seriously, this is like one part affirmation, one part denial. Like <laughs> the fact that I have to install something on my phone to make sure people don't do this crap is right. annoying. Yeah, but
0: it's it's amazing. I have like some other, I think, uh, credit monitoring stuff, and I just I'm surprised how so many times I get an email that's like, "We found your." email on the dark web we found your phone number associated and it's just incredible so again we live in a data soaked data saturated world it's part and parcel for how we do our business there's all this exhaust that comes out of all the things that we do so i get it and of course it doesn't come without attendant benefits yeah but this is one of the drawbacks so check out permission slip i also think it's kind of like a slick name for something like this I i love that yeah i do like clever names for apps
1: Although sometimes apps can get so clever with their naming that you don't know what they do. That's true. Like, um, the, the one that's similar to this for like ongoing subscriptions used to be called Truebill, which is like a really clever name for it. Now it's called rocket money, which is like the stupidest. It doesn't, I mean, I know it was like a company that bought them and that was like the parent company, but like, it's not a descriptive name for that function at all. Really anymore. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not. So, I'm
0: all about it. I'm here for this kind of thing, especially if it can get you, save a little time, save a little frustration. I'm like you, so my, I I don't, I live in Pennsylvania, but my cell phone number is a New Hampshire number and just the sheer number of junk calls that I get, spam calls of all kinds is truly remarkable, but I, I assume I'm not unique. Oh yeah. So I know like if somebody's calling me with that number using a 603 area code, it's like they're just purely trying to snipe me. So I'm just yeah. like, man, it's, it's just incredible. So anyway, that's enough of me ranting about. I'm definitely not like get off the grid. This is kind of like, hey, is there a way for us to stay on the grid, but uh, not be squashed by the grid? So this is somewhere in that. Yeah, theme. yeah, sure. How, how about you? What are you affirming with?
1: So I this is timely and, and I don't know if maybe I just happened to sort of like tap into the zeitgeist um, of this stoicism thing that I was talking about. Yeah. I had no idea that it was like this big, like movement in like men's circles. Like I'm not, I, I'm, I am a man, but I'm not like involved in correct. like men's circles. I'm not really involved in most circles at all. I like Wait, circles. A what, are, what are men's circles? Like, uh, like the online, like men's development groups and like men's Bible study groups. Like I'm just not, I don't participate in any of that stuff. I'm not in like any, like, how to be a man, Facebook groups, you know, I don't listen to like the art of manliness podcast or anything like that, but apparently stoicism and Ryan holiday. And like, there's one book by Namie seals and Jordan Peterson is like the big, big rage and all this stuff. And it's understandable. Uh, so my affirmation of stoic philosophy and sort of reading stoic philosophy and taking, taking from it principles that are actually Christian principles. The one that I talked about, I think either last week or the week before, apparently like, There's a lot of people doing that, and I just had no idea. Uh, But then an article came out by a guy named Shane Morris, who actually is someone that I have known for quite a long time, probably more than a decade now that I think about how long I've been interacting with Shane. So my very first uh, foray into the online world of Reformed Theology was a tiny Facebook group. I think the largest it ever was, was 15 people that I created called the Reformed Think Tank. And it was one of those things where it was like we were trying to start a blog and it was going to be a YouTube channel. It was going to be all sorts of things and it never panned out. But Shane was one of the guys who was in this group. So I've known Shane for a long time. He's a real sharp thinker. I don't agree with him on everything. There's things that we would definitely disagree on. But he, uh, this is the first thing I would disagree with him on. He wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. So that's the first thing I wouldn't do if I were him. But he wrote this article and it's a it's called Savior or Stoics: Why Modern Men Look for Spiritual Wisdom Outside the Church. So it's a very good article. Uh, it's actually keys in on a lot of the same things I was saying about how Stoicism, the things within Stoicism that are valuable, are uh, are actually Christian principles that are are that right. that the non-Christian receives by common grace. And he points out, and part of the the point of his article is that there are a lot of men in the church. And I don't think he necessarily has any particular part of the visible church that he has in mind, but there are men in the church who are looking to the principles of Stoicism, who are looking to, uh, he calls Ryan Holiday a self-help guy. I don't know that I would consider what Ryan Holiday writes and what he does as self-help necessarily, but he points to Ryan Holiday, Jordan Peterson, some of this Navy SEALs, books that are written um, as sort of like evidence of this, that there are men within the church that are basically turning to this because there is sort of this moral vacuum within the church that sort of like men typically need certain kinds of things. Um, They need certain kinds of perspectives. And he makes the point that a lot of like men's Bible studies are really just attempts to recreate kind of female, like women's Bible studies. So rather than lean into the fact that men have a particular perspective, they just sort of try to in some ways try to make men more like women in terms of like emotionality and and vulnerability and sensitiveness. Not that any of those things are intrinsically unmasculine, but the, I think that I do agree with him and with a lot of thinkers that they those things have particularly masculine male expressions that are not the same as female expressions of vulnerability or um intimacy. Like those things are not men don't express those things the same way women do and a lot of men's bible studies that are produced by some of the big kind of like evangelical industrial complex publishers all they're really doing is trying to take men into some of those spaces that are really more appropriate for a female perspective so he he connects that to men now are looking for something distinctly male, something distinctly masculine to sort of fill that gap. And a lot of them are turning to this sort of modern day Stoicism, which is embodied or exemplified by people like Ryan Holiday or Jordan Peterson. So it's a great article. It's really, really valuable. I've actually been toying around with the idea of trying to develop something, I don't know what I would call it, probably something like Christian Stoicism to not only sort of identify and fill this gap, right? There's a lot of people trying to sort of get at this gap within the Christian church. Um, some of Amy Bird's early work actually was the same kind of thing on the women's side of things, that a lot of women's Bible studies were just trash, terrible, and there wasn't good Bible study for women that actually identified and met the needs of Christian women. I think there's a different kind, but a similar gap on men's the men's side of things. So I'm kind of trying to toy around with how do we actually formulate this and articulate it. But it's worth your time. It's a, it's a relatively long article. It's not like a it's not like an essay, but I think it was about 3,000 words. So it'll take you a, a little bit of time to read. Um, or if you have matter or pocket, you just toss it on there and listen to it in your ears. But um, check it out. It's really good. You can go to the gospel coalition slash article slash slave savior dash stoics dash modern dash men. Or if you just search Shane Morris, um, Stoicism, and the Gospel Coalition on Google, you should find it as well. Yeah, that's great. I mean,
0: like we said, I guess, last time we spoke about this, this is one of those things where it's just so easy to kind of harp on it, to put it on blast as a Christian and say it's, it's all worthless, in part because we judge it by its abuse, those who have espoused this in such a way as to put it up against the gospel or up against theological thought. But really, this is one of those things where all knowledge belongs to God. And so even what's being expressed here philosophically at its root many times has a connection that is distinct and distinctly Christian in its origin and also its application. And of course, like a lot of this comes under the auspice of either self-help or this idea that somehow we can get these transcendent truths. And because we are not transcendent, that they will give us new life, new purpose, new meaning, or a better one of all those things. And people are just looking for a place to worship. And so they're, they're worshiping these ideals and principles instead of the one from which they come or from whom they come rather. So I'm totally with you. It's it's interesting. I think that stoicism, like stoics are going to stoicize. And so like it, it's one of those things that's always somewhere simmering in the background yeah. because again, like this idea of having good transcendent truth that's like eternally contemporary is something we all long for. And you yeah. look and feel and seem wicked smart if you're able to even regurgitate some of that nonsense. In a setting where it just shows, oh, this person has like some principles for a living that seem, again, to go over all cultures, over all experiences, over relationships. Yeah, I love that because it yeah. makes me seem like I'll tap into something that's going to give me new power, if only again to give me another more ways to self-aggrandize or a better feeling about myself, and my own accomplishments. So there's a lot there. That I think as Christians that just it's like an open door for us yeah. to walk through. It has some really great conversations because at the root, there is this idea of something having hegemony over the way in which we understand the world, the way we perceive it, and the way in which we behave in that world that brings about, at least on the face, righteousness and prosperity and quality living and abundant life. And of course, all those things are actually found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And these are just like lesser shadow-like representations some of those things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I think there's a lot of fruitful work being done on in the reformed um, theological world is on the concept of natural law. And some of this has to do with kind of like the resurgence in Aquinas stutter studies. Um, I don't know if Aquinas stuttered or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but but there's this idea. That there are certain things that are built into creation, and we would be wise to observe these things that are built into creation. Right, the, the Bible commands us to do this. Right, Proverbs tells us to yes. look to the ant or to look to um, to the grasshopper, whatever it might be. Actually, I think that's probably not the grasshopper is probably not a biblical uh, thing. No. But you know, it tells us to look to the ant or to observe the seasons or, or all of these things, and. The world is designed a certain way. And if the world is designed a certain way, then we would we would assume that things that function in accord with that design are going to work out better in general than things that don't. And here here's a um this is just Shane is a really good he's a really, really good communicator. I actually think he may have been a, a like a communication studies person in college. I may be wrong on that, but here's a paragraph that I just want to read. And this is just this is just like really crisp and precise. And it sh- it exemplifies and demonstrates a lot of what I was saying when I was talking about this. It says here, quote, The best self-help opera- authors have always promulgated natural truths that complement rather than compete with supernatural redemption found in Christ. These common grace truths often sound very similar to the Bible's wisdom literature and the Sermon on the Mount. Consider key Stoic insights celebrated by Holiday and others. Moral integrity is better than riches. Proverbs twenty-two one. He's not. He's not saying this is Proverbs twenty-two. He's pointing out the parallel passage. Moral integrity is better than riches, Proverbs 22, one. do Don't worry about tomorrow, but act morally today, Matthew 6.34. Don't stress over what you can't control, Luke 12.25-26. Don't return wrong for wrong, Matthew 5.38-48. Live as if each day could be your last, Ecclesiastes 3.19. These are just biblical principles that are woven into nature. And that, I think that's the key with wisdom literature. It's like wisdom literature is often pointing out, a form of natural law doing so by means of of supernatural revelation and we just need to sort of like understand that and we need to not be so concerned about where we get that from obviously scripture is our guide. And it's the only rule of faith and practice. It's the only source of infallible inspiration and infallible teaching, but it's not the only source of information, period. There's all sorts of stuff that's available. And this is where I'm struggling a little bit. And maybe if, if people are interested in sort of like wrestling through this with me, join in the tele- telegram chat, t.me slash reform brotherhood. But I'm wrestling with this idea of like a Christian stoicism. And how do we actually do that? How do we not just take stoicism and like rephrase it with like, instead of, instead of saying memento mori, consider your death, just instead saying like number your days. Like I don't, I'm not going after this idea that we just take stoicism and just like paste Bible verses over the top of it. Um, But I also think like there is a lot of value in that the practice of memento mori of considering the fact that tomorrow you could die and if you do die tomorrow how would you live today who would you share the gospel with who would you make sure knew that you love them all of those things are really valuable practices that i think the concept of numbering your days or recognizing that uh, all men die and then comes judgment like all of those concepts they're biblical concepts that are woven into reality that stoicism or neo-stoicism with people like holiday have tapped into, but we want to not just like take stoicism and paint over it. But I also think this is getting into like a way bigger conversation than I intended it to. I also think we look at something like John Piper's Christian hedonism and we see some of what Shane is talking about, right? John Piper's articulation of Christian hedonism is very much about emotional expressions and emotionality, right? He, he actually makes affections and feeling certain emotional responses to God a part of what it means to have faith, a part of faith. So when I, I kind of joke around and I say, it's salvation sola feels, right? That's not too much of an exaggeration, and my concept of like christian stoicism as i've been studying some of this stuff is almost like a corrective to that like there's a seriousness about the christian faith that i think evangelicalism has really missed and there's a seriousness about the faith that really does i think not that women can't or shouldn't be serious about the faith but there's a seriousness that comes with manhood with with being male one of the examples that he points out Um, that is from one of the Navy SEALs things, is that one thing men typically, we're talking about like statistical averages. Some women are excellent at this and some men are really terrible at this, but men typically are able to compartmentalize their emotions, particularly in crisis situations. And he points out that, that one of the battles that the SEALs talk about is the fact that some emotions are not going to help you in the moment that you're in. And so you learn to pull that emotion back. Usually I think it's probably something like fear and sadness and sorrow, but you pull that emotion back in order to accomplish the task. And there's actually something to that I think with the Christian faith that sometimes we need to just push our emotions to the side. And that's like that's the key Stoic insight. Uh, Stoicism is not about eliminating your emotions. That's a misnomer. It's about mastering your emotions. It's about overcoming your emotions. As In Christian language, it's about taking every thought captive to Christ, that we are able to push our emotions to the side when appropriate and take stock of the situation and worship. Sometimes I don't want to go to Sunday service. Sometimes I'm bored during the church service. I need to learn how to take that emotion or that state of being and push it to the side and focus on the task at hand. So I, I'm not quite sure where to go with all this. I think there's some some fruitful ground to till here. So yeah, I, I think this is a really good article. It just adds to this ongoing conversation that I think the church needs to have.
0: At the very least, it's again, I would say more fodder for this idea of why catechesis is so important. Yes. Why, again, just marinating in the full counsel of God, regularly rehearsing by reading, by processing. Again, in a day and age, we have access to it in that kind of way is so important because to your point, it's not like you're going to try to like warm up Stoicism by just slapping over it every translation of the equal phrase with parody from the scriptures, because I'm not sure that that's profitable either. What is profitable is knowing that all of this lies within the scriptures and that God is so good to us and that yeah. he just he's given away a direct way with this special revelation to tell us the truth about the way things really are. And so it's just, it's comforting and lovely to see it reflected elsewhere and be like, oh yeah, I know that principle. And of course, like, I think to the Christian maybe hearing this, who has some sense of the scriptures is at least literate in most of the theology that you just espouse. They're saying, well, that that seems plainly obvious, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, And it's only plainly obvious because God has been good to us and he's enlightened our minds. And that in point of fact, by going back to the scriptures and having the Holy Spirit press us with that truth so that it does resonate with us so that the sinful man in that, in that taking out of the heart of stone and that heart of flesh is able to receive, there is now a way for there to be an indelible print pushed on us by the mark, the signet real host, so to speak, of the Holy yeah. Spirit, as the scriptures are applied, so that they make sense when you read that. And then you say, you know what? This makes sense for my life. That I ought to do this, that it is not only for my greatest good, but for God's greatest glory. And so maybe that's also just a clearing call for all of us to get back into the scriptures, that we, don't, yeah. we shouldn't need somebody to spoon feed us, the equivalent of what stoicism has to offer, but in biblical terms, instead, it ought to be the other way around. And so we really should just be going after all these doctrinal truths with great gusto because th- that doctrine is not like a dusty word. It's not yeah. out of style. It's not outmooted. And in point of fact, all these secular viewpoints are in some ways just trying to replicate that very thing yeah. over and over again yeah. without creed. It, instead, it comes with heuristics, right? Rules for a living, principles yep. for how to do your life, or philosophy. Yep. and again they're all getting back to somebody tell me literally for the love of God the truth about life yes and all of that's in the scripture so I, to me that you're challenging me it's a clearing call to say get back and be consistent with our processing and our study of the of the scriptures yep. and and seeing like the whole picture just read even those things don't feel like it just read keep going keep going christian because god is using that in his cumulative way where it pays dividends it compounds such that there's this muscle memory it's being developed and so that when you have these conversations and somebody says you know I consider your death you're automatically like you sort of thinking what well, i remember david talking about numbering his days yep. and how important it was to do that and there we are now we're having a conversation about truth and we're we're not just having a conversation about truth we're now having a conversation from where truth comes it's not just an idea. It's not just some philosopher sitting down and saying, you know, it'd be really great here. Or I've spent enough time meditating and now I've come up with this really, really great idea. But that it comes from the one who is truth. So I'm I'm with you. Yeah. Maybe we don't need like some kind of resource. Maybe we have the resource already. Yeah. And we just need to get after it again in yeah, a new way. Yeah, for
1: sure. So what are you denying today, Jesse?
0: Yeah, shockingly, maybe not so. You've kind of really just laid out a table for me to go into my denial. And that is, <laughs> I, I just... This is old about goodies. So it's not new, but I do think it's time to bring it back up. Coconut I oil. happened to see again, I was thinking about this because Mission Aware has some new prints out. If you like their stuff, you go check this out. But it's this amazing shirt and coffee cup and all kinds of stuff that just says, don't follow your heart and references that scripture in Jeremiah about you know, the heart being deceptively wicked. And I was just like, man, that's good. That's good. I, I am denying this idea. I, I think like most Christians say, yeah, that's bad news. But there's this idea, again, that somehow somewhere the heart has hegemony and whatever is like in the person's innermost recesses, somehow that's the purest thing about them. Where the scripture, again, to our point, tells us the truth, which is it's actually the most disgusting thing about you because you're by nature born into sin. Like before you can even understand that concept, you are already bathed in it. You come out of the womb fully engrossed in it. Not as bad as you possibly could be, but certainly sin is a ubiquitous part of your being. And it starts at the center and you need, I love, I was thinking recently of the Psalms and, you know, this glorious praise that David is pouring forth when he's asking that God would create a clean heart. And I thought, what wonderful language, what specific verb there that again, God does all the verbs in the scriptures for us in the law and along the gospel He's just doing all these verbs. And it would be one thing for him to say, like, would you absolve my heart? Would you just cleanse my heart? But he asks, it must be a new creation. And that is so liberating to know that you don't create it yourself. And so, again, we don't want the heart that we have. It's like somebody saying, like, you know, go out and find the person who gives you the most worst awful advice, like just the drop dead stuff that you listen to and think, I will never do that and do all that stuff. That's yeah. following your heart. That's following your heart. So I was just uh, against this idea of whether it's Disney or fairy tales or anybody else that, that I think the, the more common, sophisticated, grown up, bespectacled version of this is like. Man, you just need to do some processing and dive like real deep inside and find out what's there. That's like the warmed up version of Follow Your Heart, which seems more sophisticated and more ethically superior. It's just not, of course. So most everybody knows this already, but uh, jump on then loved ones. And let's make sure that we're not doing that to your point take every thought captive, but also let the scriptures, the truth of God, govern our emotions. And sometimes it's like acknowledging the fact that the way you feel, or the way that I feel in any given moment, just because I feel it, doesn't mean it's one, it's accurate, two, it's helpful, or three, that it's what God would require of me. Sometimes I think the test there is, will we actually bring that feeling, not just the thought, but the feeling captive and underneath the full weight of what God has commanded us to do and to think and how to process and to live. So, let's not follow our hearts. Yeah. That that way madness lies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're a hundred percent right. Uh, I'm going to jump into my denial cause it actually fits in pretty amazingly with this. Excellent. So I had a different denial in mind. Uh, and this is a denial I was thinking about and wasn't going to do cause I wanted to be not that guy, but you're, it just fits too perfectly. So Get that guy speaking of mission aware uh which I love mission aware I don't have we don't have an affiliation with them but I've always loved mission aware stuff one of the things that I've noticed uh and mission aware the I've only found one design on their website that fits this category but we have to be careful when we are appropriating Bible verses because we think we're kind of clever so there's a t-shirt on mission aware's uh website and it cites judges 1617 and I don't know what translation this is. I guess maybe I'm assuming it's the ESV because this is mission aware. But the quotation, the, the version of the verse that they read says, if I'm shaven, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. Uh-huh. Now, I have to kind of make some assumptions, but just based on the the sort of neo-Calvinist or new Calvinist like emphasis on beards. And like how important beards are, there's like that quote that's like growing a beard is a godly practice, whatever. I think it's by Spurgeon, yeah. probably. This passage has nothing to do with growing a beard, right? So we put right. this, we blazon this on a T-shirt. Uh, it's it sounds funny and clever, and it's all you know. We we laugh about it, and we we revel in our glorious beards. Which Jesse's beard, I don't know if you guys have seen Jesse, but Jesse's beard is way more glorious than mine is. I um, don't know about that. This is this is. This is no better than when Stephen Furtick takes a verse that has nothing to do with him and somehow transplants himself into the passage and makes it all about him. And so this isn't necessarily, this is not a denial of missional where they're just kind of following the zeitgeist that I think a lot of Christians get swept up in. Um, but the fact of the matter is, like this is a, this is a straight up third commandment violation, right? The the third commandment commands us not to make use of anything by which God reveals Himself in a trivial or frivolous manner, right? Only to handle God's word, God's attributes, God's works in an irreverent in manner. And I'm I'm not really understanding how like putting on a T-shirt or a mug some some passage out of Judges that's that's a narrative passage about Samson's. Hair and how, if it's cut, he loses his strength, which is a whole different conversation. He's like a superhero at this point, but um, I, I just, I, 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 that makes me feel uneasy. And I think the more I look around at sort of like pop reformed culture, I think I see that this kind of stuff more and more. Um, we're very quick to be really upset about the chosen and how they are filling in the white spaces of the Bible, which is, we're, we're totally legit to be upset about that. We should be upset about that. It's a straight up statement that God's word is not sufficient when we feel like we have to supply uh, flavor text or fan fiction to make it uh, palatable to the masses. But when we when we appropriate a passage like this totally out of context, and make it about like our vanity about our beards. like I have a beard. I like my beard. I think it looks nice. I try to keep it trim. Jesse's beard is is amazing and I covet it every time I see him. but if <laughs> if for some reason it was in, it was serviceable to the gospel for us to shave our beards, neither yeah, right. one of us would hesitate to grab the razor and shave it off and sure. there's this sort of this maybe this goes along with my my affirmation about appropriating stoicism, there's sort of this like misguided understanding of manliness. That's all about like beards and beer and like, like hunting and fishing. Like those things may be manly in certain ways, but that's not what manliness is about. That's not what masculinity is. So I, I don't know. I don't know where else to go with that. I just saw this design on their website the other day. And since we were already talking about mission aware designs, I figured maybe I would counterbalance your positive take on one of their designs.
0: I like that. There's definitely a line, isn't there? We've talked about this in some of our other episodes, whether it's images of Christ or other things that we might use. So What we're kind of doing is employing them to come alongside with the tongue-in-cheek nature of our culture, mm-hmm. even if it's a really nuanced part of culture. And I'll be honest, sometimes I do get reformed with reformed people, including myself, because I just get wrapped up in these things that we yeah. want to identify with or self-identify as. And some of those, there's another T-shirt on there that has kind of struck me slightly the wrong way and, and i want to be charitable because i think it, it comes from this place of wanting to honor god and making sure that god has primacy over everything that we do and everything we think yeah all this stuff we just talked about but i noticed that it popped up after covid and the t-shirt i'm going to misquote it slightly so please forgive me but the, the gist of it is like something like obey god defy yeah. talents. yep and I, I i get the the spirit of that is in some ways right on However, you got to think about how people perceive that that you're modeling that and just walking around wearing that. I'm not trying to put anybody on blast who has that t-shirt. I'm just merely saying, I think for all of us, we often need to question the way in which we kind of try to make Christian culture, reform culture, reformed ideas and people who represent them kitsch and cute and neat and funny. That's okay. And sometimes maybe that's purely intramural, but when it goes beyond intramural, I do get sometimes a little bit nervous and that t-shirt in particular is one that I could easily see being misunderstood and also seeing people who are not believers who have no context for understanding that saying, see, this is the problem with these people. Like they just want to be rebellious. And that's actually not what we're saying. If anything, like cut to the apostle Paul, like Romans 13 style, who is like, like, where's the shirt that says the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. I don't see that shirt. And that is essentially like the counterbalance to this idea of obeying God and defying tyrants. So, you're right. like and this is we're calling out to ourselves and to everybody else, like we've got to take up the mantle here and be careful about how we represent this culture. yeah you know, we don't make too much. We don't turn people off from like basic principles of really good reformed theology because we represent it poorly in that we've created a culture around it instead. and those things are on the outside, like almost guarding as as it were, yeah. the center, which is all this really great understanding of theology. So, yeah. I'm totally with you. I don't know. Like some sometime, you know what we should do? Let's do an episode where like you and I pull up the proverbial stool. Uh, we'll, we'll <laughs> each get a stool. So that way we're not in this weird hypothetical environment I'm creating in people's minds. We'll each get a stool and then we'll have like a family conversation. Like what's yeah. what's kind of going on in our form? Like, how do we treat ourselves? Because we're part of it, right? So right. I think we've often, at times, you and I have talked about our own convictions of certain things and how we're always trying to work. But we we want to bring more and more people into this proper understanding of the scriptures, which we firmly believe and are convicted that Reformed yeah. theology yeah. represents. And yet, uh, to me, the the wildest thing is when somebody says to me something like, listens a podcast or meets you or I says, oh, "You guys are Reformed." Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, and they say something like, "Wow, you're very different," or "Wow, you just seem more chill," or yeah. I don't know, you don't seem to get on so much about like flannel and beers as everybody else in that group.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Ironically, I'm wearing a flannel right now,
0: (laughs) but you don't like, how dare you, you, sir? Yeah. You're not like, you're not putting your flannel on me. You're not saying like wear flannel and defy tyrants, you know, like you're, you're, you know what I mean? It's, it's subtle and slight. That's okay. Yeah. Like style is, is, is yours to manifest as you desire. It's theologically agnostic. And so much of actually of like the people, what people would consider as reformed is like, actually agnostic yeah. to the theology. Yeah. So just because like Spurgeon had a beard and maybe he said something about growing it in pancakes, we've just like taken that and said like, this is super fun. And yeah, you know, like you should be able to, to see if a church is reformed or how reformed it is. Even mean this tongue in cheek by like the amount of flannel, the amount of boots worn and the amount of beards. Yeah. And I get it. That That's maybe funny, but we can, it's become a caricature, I guess. Yeah. Of its own kind. And that's where you might be like, all right, everybody, let's chill. Let's get easy for a second.
1: Yeah. Three and, thoughts. Yeah. And then we yeah. have to move on. The first thought is you may be listening to what we're saying and think that we are trashing on the reformed podcast because their logo is literally a guy with a beard <laughs> Wearing a flannel. I would just like to say, first of all, Jesse is drinking a beer out of a Reformed Pubcast uh, tulip glass right That's now. True. And yes. if the Reformed Pubcast produced a new episode tomorrow, it would still come to my phone because I'm still subscribed to their feed. So we love Les, we love Tanner, we love the Reformed Pubcast. Yes, pub we owe a lot to them just in terms of our own lineage and heritage. Um, I think it was 178, wasn't it, when we had Wes on or less on? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to that. We owe a lot to those guys. So my second thought is this is the really like, maybe it's a little bit unsanctified, but kind of like stick it to the man kind of part of me. If you purchased a, uh, my strength will leave me if I'm shaven misquote of judges, whatever, whatever, uh, send mission aware an email and ask them to replace it with the, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context (laughs) t-shirt. I think that would be good. Uh, I don't remember what the third thing was. I had a third thing that was probably going to be the actual segue to our topic. So why don't we just segue um, to the topic? Yeah,
0: let's because we you know what I can hear right now. I can hear people furiously typing reviews yes. into Apple Podcasts that say, these guys titled the episode something and they never get to it. And that's because they've just stopped listening so that they could write the review with full concentration it's and focus. True. But we are actually going to talk about this thing called church polity. We're rounding it up. We're about to collect them all. And hopefully people have gone through and listened to the last two, the previous episodes, because we're going to finish it out with a little bit of congregationalist polity or congregational polity or congregationalism. You get to choose. But we're talking about the last in our overarching kind of series of different ways in which the church governs its activity, its administration of the things that it ought to be doing by as, as is commanded to us through Jesus Christ, which we talked about. There's a lot of liberty in these structures yeah. in terms of how churches implement them. And some of them, and I don't think this is a bad thing, normally we would kind of say it pejoratively, but a lot of churches kind of take a buffet approach with this. Yeah. You know, there's parts of it that is congregational and Episcopal and also parts that are Presbyterian, and some have more than one of the others, but I would actually venture to say that most don't have all of the one in a, in a kind of really pure form. Yes. And if they do, there'd be others in their own, stream that would disagree with rights about they're administering. So this is one place where we can learn from each other, we can love one another. And so let's start by just saying what this is not in distinction to the ones we talked about. Here's how I would say it. When we talked about Episcopal polity and we talked about Presbyterian polity, we basically said that all of those churches, visible churches operating under that model, all had some kind of direct formalized codified hierarchy. They were part of a group and they had authority. There was somebody over them that had authority. In the Episcopal polity, it was the governance of a hierarchy of bishops, right. almost vouchsafed to a single person. And that would be distinct from Presbyterian polity in which there are higher assemblies of congregational representatives that can exercise considerable authority over the individual con- uh, congregation. So in those two models, what you have in common, like the Venn overlapping diagram, is just a hierarchy with somebody else to which they would be subservient or submit, at least yeah. theoretically, in yeah. some part of their business. And now here comes congregationalism into the room. And this is the distinctive, and that is that we're talking about a method in which there is autonomy. So it's a system in which the local church, that congregation, is independent, ecclesiastically sovereign or autonomous. And of course, from where you're not, where you sit exactly, and from where I was raised, if you're in the U.S., this kind of was really first articulated back in New England. So this kind of has like a New England flavor, if you will, to some extent, but at least in the U.S. Um, but that's the big distinction independent versus some kind of more formalized structure under which there would be some kind of governance that's above and over
1: yeah and and i think you know one of the things that reformed theology this sort of new resurgence of reformed theology um and i i'm very much guilty of this when i say quote the confessions what i usually mean is the westminster confession of faith the Westminster Larger Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Um, right. There are a lot of Reformed confessions outside of th- those documents. Um, you know, obviously, there's the Three Forms of Unity. There's the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So when when someone from kind of like modern neo-confessional post uh, New Calvinism um, says confessions, that's usually what they're talking about: the Westminster Standards, the Three Forms of Unity and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. There is also actually something that sort of sits between the Westminster Confession of Faith historically and the London Baptist Confession of Faith called the Savoy Declaration. And the Savoy Declaration is a, re- a thoroughly reformed confessional document, although some people would probably disagree with calling it thoroughly reformed <coughs> Reginald Scott Clark. um, But... It's a thoroughly reformed document. It's it's patterned after and appropriates much of the Westminster Confession, but it's a congregational expression of polity. And so they actually amend to, I th- I've had a little bit of trouble, if I'm being really honest, understanding exactly where this amendment to or addendum to the confession actually even fits historically into the document. It appears most of the time like it's attached to Chapter 26 of the Savoy Declaration, which is equivalent to chapter 25 of the Westminster Confession and is sort of equivalent to what uh, chapter 26 and 27 of the London Baptist Confession. There's actually an amendment uh, called the Institution of Churches and the order appointed in them by Jesus Christ. And it's a it's a congregational statement that basically outlines a congregational model of Christian polity. Of church polity. And the key thing with congregational polity, when people think of congregational polity, they think of congregational voting, right? They think of the fact that, like, the people in the pews make the decisions. And that certainly in modern expressions is how it plays out, right? In most congregational model churches, which most Baptist churches, even Reformed Baptist churches, and I mean 1689 Baptist churches, Most of them have a congregational polity. And as we mentioned before, even in Presbyterian models and even in in the Roman Catholic Church, which is kind of the most Episcopal of all Episcopal models, there are still some decisions that are made that are relegated to the local congregation, to the local people in the pews. Uh, Depending on your tradition that you're looking at, some of those may be more or less substantive decisions uh, more or less theological, but there are some decisions in the the governing and ruling and execution of the church that are relegated to the local congregation in all of these models. And the caricature, if we're talking about kind of like the idealized form of congregational polity, is that every decision is relegated to the people who sit in the pews. Right. And this usually takes the form of a congregational vote. That isn't necessarily always the case. Sometimes you can have a congregational model where like the only thing that the congregation directly weighs in on is who the elders are. And then the elders are are delegated all of the decision-making process. In my own church, uh, that's not exactly how it works, but there are a lot of times that what the congregation votes is to delegate a responsibility or a decision to the leadership team to make. Right. That that happens in a lot of churches where you know we're we're working on revising our church constitution. And rather than sit in committee of the entire church going line by line through the constitution, the church voted to delegate that responsibility to the leadership team, the the elder session, and, and the other people who are in leadership in the church. And then we'll bring that back to the congregation to be presented and voted on for approval. So different congregational churches and models will handle this differently but the the actual defining feature of congregational polity is not necessarily who votes on the decision it's more that there are no authorities outside of the local context right. that speak into that context that's the key differentiator
0: And you can see why that might be the case, how it kind of evolved in such a way to bring about a greater, at least in the minds of some, fidelity to the scriptures and practice of piety in the life of believers who are part of a local visible congregation, in the sense that we talked about one of the disadvantages of both the other models, so to speak, is that because they're vouchsafing power and authority to somebody else, if that power or authority becomes corrupted in some way, then it's very difficult to overturn that. So this idea, and this is, I say this again, not pejoratively, in some ways is very distinctively Western, this idea that we should be able to be totally independent. And so you're talking about, again, a vast form of autonomy that says the best thing we can do to protect ourselves, to protect the purity of the gospel and our functioning of his church is to make sure it is not polluted by outside influence or that somebody doesn't have undue control or authority over that such that they could overturn what we believe to be Biblical life practice and teaching. So I get that. It's also like very pilgrim style. You know, you get the sense that we did, we wanted to push away and out from underneath really bad influences. It's also not to say that there, you can. Uh, you don't have to have like an association. So like one of the big examples, like you're saying is each local congregation is going to be independent, self-supporting, governed by its own members. That doesn't mean though that you can't get connected with others. So some who are still independent, they'll form like loose voluntary associations with other congregations that share similar beliefs like little creek association or the unitarian universalist movement or southern baptist convention or northern yeah. baptist convention american baptist churches like that's all examples of churches that still retaining this congregational independent approach but still for other reasons identification solidarity or resource are binding together but it's not strictly binding right. not in the same way we talk about this episcopal or presbyterian mode in which you're all in it together you're all kind of stuck together and you're willing to again submit and almost turn over at some point some kind of decision making or authority to somebody else for good reason and you can see again the strengths and the disadvantages of each of these models and in part how they're born out of particular experiences of people who are living during those times or again trying to make sure they were honoring god making sure the church was accomplishing the task at hand the last thing I'll say is, I'm totally with you because I think this is a really fruitful and fun exercise. Everybody now, having listened to some of these basic details, should go through and pick something that your church does and find mostly, like if the, if the multiple choice question was, this activity of your church, insert the blank, it most likely fits with A, Congregationalism, B, Presbyterian, C, Episcopal, and see where it falls. And I bet yeah. that what you'll find, like you said, is that you're going to get all three in the mix somewhere. So yeah. in my own church. We have a model such that there is like a district superintendent. That's like straight up Episcopal. Like you can just tick that right yep. off. But when it comes to, we also have a group of, we have elders and we have committees like a board. And so those things, they're not the same. They're different. Those things, that's very Presbyterian. There's yeah. a lot of Presbyterian love right there. But then lastly, you just like you said, you know how the elders get elected? By the congregation. Right. That's an independent decision, even though we're part of this and we vouch save some responsibilities to others and we willingly submit to that authority, not when it comes to actually electing the elders that represent that church. So there's all three right there for you in the mix. It's like a, a beautiful coming together. It's like a polity jambalaya. Yeah. It's like a little bit, you know what I mean? Like the congregationalist piece is like, that's a little bit spicy. Yeah. The the I say the Presbyterian part is like. A little bit rich. It's like the broth, you know, like it's, you know what I'm saying? And then there's like the Episcopal, that's like kind of like the the meat, I guess, or like the potatoes are like, I don't know, what else is in jambalaya? I don't but know. It's shrimp it's usually. It's, is
1: there shrimp in jambalaya? Now I'm hungry, Jesse.
0: Listen, that might be the Episcopal part. That's the, the shrimp. shrimp.
1: Yeah, the shellfish.
0: Especially like a king prawn. That's what I'm yeah. saying. That's kind of like a bishop. Mm. That's the bishop of shellfish. I,
1: I, I got I to go, Jesse. I'll be back. I need to go eat some, some jambalaya. I think <laughs> actually it's jambalaya, isn't it? J.A. Jambalaya, I jambalaya. I'm,
0: I'm already out of my depth here. It was a mistake for me to evoke that metaphor. We need to call your wife. She probably knows what's in the jambalaya. <laughs> she she probably does. And I could be like, which um which recipe are you using? The Episcopalian or the Episcopalian? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, she'd be like, "What are you
1: talking?" She is, about? She'd be like, "I'm, I'm making the recipe that makes me roll my eyes at you all day long, yeah. every
0: day." So, so just to tie everything together, honestly, if I went, if I left this microphone right now, went downstairs and made that joke, she'd say something like, "This is what's wrong with reform theology." <laughs> what you just right there.
1: <laughs> And then you'd be like, "But look at my glorious beard!" <laughs> yeah. To which she'd
0: say, "It needs to look on purpose." And it's it true. But it's you, true. you know what I'm saying? Like, I like what you just said about it's helpful to kind of process how all these things uh, come yeah. together. And again, it's, it's so illustrative for me. And I think people should go and read on these things. I have any interest just in how the church works, that you'll see so much of this is born out of a particular time and place. Yeah, And you have well intentioned Christians coming together to say, listen, it is of primary importance that we fulfill the mission that God has given us in the church. What way are we going to do that? And all of these have their advantages and disadvantages.
1: Yeah. And I would, I would again repeat the sort of disclaimer that we have said now on all three of these, these episodes that there is almost no church that i can think of that i'm aware of that actually is is the idealized form of these different models of church governance so th- there probably are not very many there are a lot of really independent local congregations that are truly autonomous and independent and don't have any uh, dependencies or accountability to other congregations but even within those congregations there are still Presbyterian or even Episcopal models, right? Yeah, you, sure. you may have. Um, here's a perfect example: my wife and I were members of a church in um, Massachusetts. It was a great church. We really appreciated our time there. The gospel was preached, um, but here, you know, it was a Baptist church called First Baptist Church. It was like a classic Baptist church, um, but it had a uh, an associate pastor and a senior pastor and an elders board. Well, that's an, that's actually an Episcopal model where you have one pastor who is the overseer of all the other pastors. That's an Episcopal model. But then at the same time, this local congregation wanted to be congregational because that was its sort of history. And everyone who was on staff, including the senior pastor reported to an elected congregation member who was basically their supervisor so there were elements of of um, episcopal polity in that there was one pastor who was a, who was a supervisor for all of the other pastors and then there was this sort of radical congregationalism where and i say radical not because it's sort of like super extreme but it's like a really fundamental congregationalism where the the congregation literally assigned a person who was the boss of the senior pastor so ultimately that person in like a, an org structure, like a corporate org structure, the senior pastor reported to an individual on the congregation who was elected by the rest of the congregation. So you can have a, a single church that is this mishmash of all these different things. Another example is a lot of um a lot of churches will be congregational in most things. And then when you get to uh, ordaining someone for kind of the senior pastor, or the teaching pastor role, they look to other churches to form sort of like an right. ordination council mm-hmm. of other ordained men who examine and approve that man's a theology. Well, that's fundamentally the Presbyterian model. I, I have a friend who is a member of a larger Baptist church in the area. And I think I've mentioned this before. One of the challenges in, in this part of the country, there are a lot of really small congregations that when their pastor leaves, they, they want to continue as a congregation, but they can't sustain financially a call to a pastor that would make it not just desirable, but even possible for a man to uproot his whole family to come and and accept that call, right? So what's happening is there's these little churches that have 15 or 20 members or less that want to continue re- to remain an independent congregation. And so this larger Baptist church that I'm aware of in the area is actually sending out to these local congregations. They're providing pulpit supply, and they're they're talking about basically creating a sort of like ministerial association where they accredit men who can preach to fill these pulpits. Well, that's basically just a Presbytery. That's just a Presbyterian model. That's exactly what the Orthodox Presbyterian church does when a small church that can't sustain its own pastor. They just send licensed ministers from the Presbytery to fill that pulpit. Uh, or eventually that that congregation shuts down. So there's no one particular congregation or denomination that fully embodies the idealist form of these, but I do want to read this from the the Savoy Declaration because I think this is really key because the congregational model like I said really is defined by the idea that there is no authority outside of the local congregation. The SBC is the closest thing to this pure congregational model that I've actually encountered. The SBC has no say in whom who a congregation ordains to the ministry. So right. a teaching elder or a senior pastor, a minister of the gospel is chosen, ordained, and credentialed by the local church and the local church alone in reference to the SBC. There are other Baptist conventions and groups that do it differently, but the SBC is the closest thing to this. And this is this is out of that little addendum in the or amendment in the um, Savoy Declaration. This is again chapter 26 of the Savoy Declaration, which is titled of the church. It's parallel to chapter 20 uh, 25 of the Westminster and is sort of parallel to chapter 26 and 27 of the London Baptist. And section four um, says there is no, head of the church, uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ, not nor can the Pope in Rome in any sense be the head thereof, but is that integrated? So this is just saying like not no to episcopalianism or episcopalism. Section five, um, sorry, section five here of the amendment says these particular churches, thus appointed by the authority of Christ and entrusted with power from him for the ends before expressed, Are each of them, as unto these ends, the seat of that power which he is pleased to communicate to his saints or subjects in the world, so that as such as they receive it immediately from himself. So they're saying particular congregations are directly given Christ's power, and each local congregation is a seat of that power. The same way, or in parallel to the way that Rome says that the Vatican or that the papacy is the seat of Christ's power on church. The Savoy Declaration is saying each individual congregation is the seat of Christ's delegated power on earth. And then it says in verse six, besides these particular churches, so they're talking about each individual visible congregation, besides these particular congregations, there is not instituted by Christ any church more extensive or Catholic entrusted with the power for the administration of his ordinances or for the execution of any authority in his name. So section five of the, um, of chapter 20, of chapter 26, which is not part of the amendment, saying no no to Episcopal polity. Section six, five and six of the addendum saying no to a, a Presbyterian polity. So not only are they saying there's no, there's no hierarchical bishop, there's no one over all of the churches, they're also saying no local church actually is accountable to any other local church. And again, this is the idealized version. This is not some sort of um, explanation of the way every local church works, but this is in theory how the Savoy Congregational Declaration of Christian Faith would conceptualize the local church. And I think anyone who's interested in this would really be um, benefited and blessed by going and taking a look at this because I think, as Jesse said a little bit ago, If you were to look at your church constitution, most churches have a written constitution or bylaws. If you were to take your church's constitution and bylaws, and you were to go through each one and mark it with a E for Episcopal, P for Presbyterian, and a um, C for congregational, you'd find you don't find just E's or C's or D's. You find this mixture. And I think it's important for us, because all of our congregations are sort of this like synthesis of the different kinds of uh, polities, it's important for us to understand each part of those or each model so that we can kind of see how our individual congregation, our local congregation has developed kind of along those lines.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right on. I think maybe that's the important thing coming out of these last three episodes is this idea that it's worth examining how your church functions and just understanding that you may be able to associate those different functions, the way in which they come together directly to one or three of these things, these different forms of polity that we just talked about. And again, I think it's helpful to start to think in your own church why it might be that way. So for instance, we've already kind of, I think, hinted at the fact that This congregationalist view, in some ways, it has a really strong identity with kind of reformed theology because of this idea of having liberty to worship in a way that's unencumbered and that comports with the conscience. And so that's, of course, very reformed. It's also very biblical. And then also, it's almost in some ways kind of having this Berean type flavor, this idea of like test everything. Even test what your pastor is saying to you. In some way, that responsibility comes to the people as they are both underneath this under-shepherd manifested in their pastor, but also ultimately under God's word itself. And so that analysis comes on to the people, and the people have a responsibility and a clear authority to also make known when their leaders stray from that biblical mandate from the scriptures itself. So I love this. Hopefully people, it's one of those things, it may be like some of the best books I've ever read are books of things that are obvious, but I can never articulate. I think you sometimes get that with this conversation about what are the different forms of church polity? You'd say, Oh, okay. Yeah, of course I I recognize that, but maybe not by that name or yes, it makes a lot of sense that we do it this way or that we wouldn't do it that way. That's the beauty of this kind of brings all that just more up to the forefront. So you can have some fun analyzing it and assessing what your own church is like.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I think we've covered these uh, enough and I'm sure we'll come back to them in the future. Uh, Hopefully this little uh, foray into, I've used the word foray twice now in this one episode. It's great though. It's a good word. It's a good good word. Hopefully this little foray into church polity has been helpful and clarifying and instructive and helps people to understand a little bit more about why it is maybe their local church does things the way they do. And then I think, I, I hope people have thought about the question of like, Okay, this is why we do the things we do. This is how we got to the place we are. But I also think like now we need to ask the question, is this the way we should be doing things? Because although I I I don't know that I'm ready to say that the Bible commands a specific church polity, I do think that there is good reason by way of of example in the in the Bible to land on a more Presbyterian model. I mean, just my cards on the table. So I think we all would benefit from looking at the example that the apostles give us, uh, both in terms of what they do say about how to run the church in um, in the teaching epistles, but then also how they actually ran the church in the book of Acts, right? I think we need to look at that. We need to ask this question. We need to revisit all things in light of what the scriptures teach. And I think that this is just one of those things that a lot of people haven't thought all that much about. I know that I never really thought about it until I got to like this portion of like systematic theology and seminary. And I was like, Oh yeah, I guess different churches do do things different ways. And I, I should understand why. So hopefully this has been helpful to people. Hopefully this hasn't been just like three weeks of monotonous boringness. Um, if, if it is, I'm sure somebody will tell us that in a review on <laughs> iTunes. Uh, but yeah, I, I've enjoyed it. I've appreciated it. Seems like this would be a good, like, Like cocktail party conversation to have.
0: There you go, and we're happy to receive that comment and any others you'd like to leave on Apple Podcasts (laughs) with however many (laughs) stars you feel at liberty in your conscience to provide to us. We have no mandates, and we put no burden on anyone's conscience. It's
1: true. Well, Jesse, I think that just about wraps it up. So until next time, honor everyone, love the brotherhood.